All right, for those of you who are going to be listening to the podcast and you're going to be wondering about our study, because um, next time you look at the podcast, you will see that it doesn't say Luke 20, it will say Psalm 13. So I don't want you by any means to think that we're off course, but um, just for those of you who don't know, um, Tom and I are leaving for some weeks, and so we're going to um, incorporate for the next seven weeks these Psalms. So keep listening keep studying and then come the first part of April then I we will be back and then we will finish off the book of Luke so just know for those of you who are listening that you don't get confused in in our little um, frame that we're working in here so seven weeks of Psalms and then back to Luke 20 to 24 so all right don't forget this is my Bible I believe it's God's word I believe every word is true and it's all that I need. That's right. Luke 19 is such a great chapter. And so, you know, just a quick synopsis of how we get to 19, you know, just a quick little review. But it was so important. I thought such good instruction last week when, when um, we saw how Jesus told this parable about prayer and how essential. He wants his disciples, he wants you and I to know that this, this whole thing about prayer. It's got to be understood. And that prayer is just more than what I think our human minds have always kind of perceived it to be. And, you know, it's when we talk to God, we close our eyes and that kind of thing. But it's a portion of it. But prayer in itself is that connection. We stay connected, our spirit and God's Holy Spirit. And, and I tried to give the example last week, you know, of what does that mean to stay connected? Is that, you know, that without even saying it, you're, you're kind of including him. He's involved in every decision, every, even to the point of, Lord, how do you want me to say this? Make sure, you know, make sure that, that my words are tender and they're, they're gentle or whatever. I mean, it's just that you have to always make sure that he is involved involved in every little detail of your life because he wants to be. And he and it is such a comfort. I know it is for me when I have somebody to talk to. I mean he I just know he's there. And even if I'm not verbalizing the words, I know that I can that by thinking them, he hears them. And I know he's right there. He's right there. So and then he told the parable, you know, um you know, about being persistent, you know, that word, what does that word persistent mean? It does not mean that we keep asking and keep asking and keep asking so then we finally get our way. I mean, that's what, you know, persist long enough that we get what we want. But he is trying to get us to see that, you know, when we first go to him with some need or some request or whatever, we generally tell him what we want done and how, how we want it done. And he is saying, all right, now I want you to be persistent because I want you to know I hear everyone. I hear every word that comes out of your mouth, every request, every, you don't even have to speak it because if you are speaking it in your mind, I know what you are requesting of me. But um, I also want you to know that I will quickly answer. We saw that last week. He will quickly answer. And so many times people think that if they don't get the answer they want, either God didn't answer or he didn't hear them. And that neither one of those are, are true statements because Jesus does hear everything we say and he answers quickly, but he answers yes, no, or wait, and all three are answers. And so just so that we retrain our whole mind about what prayer really is and what persistent prayer is. And persistent prayer is that, yes, we keep asking until we finally pray this way, Lord, you know what my heart's desire is, however, your will be done. And that is, that is when we can stop because we now have released it and we've relinquished it, trusting that his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. But sometimes it takes real persistence because we just don't want to let go because we want it our way. And that is so humanly natural 
but we've got a spirit that's greater trying to motivate us to understand that God works differently sometimes than the way we want him to. But his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. So then we saw him um, help us see in our minds what what it looks like to be such a self-centered, spiritual person, very religious I mean, when you when you take a look at that Pharisee, you know they come together. This Pharisee and, and tax collector, they come together and they they come to the same church. And the Pharisee comes walking right to the front row and he puffs his chest out and he is he lifts his head up and he just thanks God that he doesn't do this and this and this and he thanks God that he's not like this guy here, that tax collector. And then the poor tax collector, he doesn't even walk in the church. He, he stays in the back. He puts his head down. He's so humble, but that's the word. He's so humble. He sees himself. He knows himself. He knows he's not even worthy. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he says. That's all the Lord needs to hear from him. And the Lord says, guess who I justified? That one, the one who just simply came to me humble and said, Lord, I need your mercy. And I am a sinner. And you know that we're justified. It's, he, he saves. He, he, he makes it. He washes our sins away and he remembers them no more. So he justifies us just as if we'd never sinned. And that's the one he, he did. He justified that tax collector. And then, and then he's, he gave us another visual about the children. You know, let those let those children come to me, and and it's such a it's such a sweet picture, isn't it? You know, you kind of picture those kids just climbing all over them because they can sense it. They can sense how much he loves them, and you know, I can just see him, you know, pulling his beard or sticking their fingers in his ear or whatever. You know, kids do corny things, and and yet Jesus is loving it and says, you know, this is the way I want the kingdom to be. You know, children are so trusting. They're so they're so believing. They they are so pure hearted. You know, I know they're naughty sometimes, but you know, basically, you, you love the thought of, of a child just nuzzling up to you, knowing that when they're near you, they're safe. When they take your hand, all is well. You know, it's kind of that picture, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is like that. No game plan. You come knowing you can't do anything to get it except through Christ. And you know that, that you know, you're, there's nothing too bad that you've done that he isn't willing to forgive if you come to him again in humility and confession and repentance. And he says, just like a child, just that innocent belief following the instructions that Jesus put out there. And then, then he gave us another picture of the rich young ruler. And this man had everything. And yet something was missing. And we're seeing that in Zacchaeus too. And tonight, and then this man had everything the world had to offer, and yet something wasn't satisfying him. He was not content. We have been born with the need for Jesus. And if people are searching for that need in all worldly ways and things and people, you're never going to find it. You'll never know contentment and satisfaction. But um, that's why this rich young ruler comes and says to Jesus, what must I do? You know, something's missing. And Jesus so beautifully says, well, um, how about no, did obey the commandments. You know, the um, thou shalt not commit adultery, no, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not you know, commit murder, honor your father and mother. Oh, no problem. You know, here's a great guy. And he's looking at these commandments and he's thinking, you know, it's the relationship man to man. No, I'm a good person. Um, I take care of my parents. I'm, I mean, there's probably many wonderful attributes about this man. But yet, Jesus then comes back and says, yeah, you know, it's true. You might have done all that, but you're lacking one thing. And that lacking one thing is the essential ingredient. What a reminder how people can, can feel like they are a good person and they are following the commandments and they, and they you know, are good church attenders and they, all that kind of stuff. And yet, Jesus is saying the same thing, but you lack one thing. You can be so religious and spiritual and, you know, have verses quoted and, and 
But if you're missing Jesus, if you're missing that main ingredient, that relationship with him, that day-to-day, that minute-by-minute connection with him, you're lacking one thing. What is standing in your way? Because Jesus almost, you know, he basically said that. I know you so well, and I know that you put your trust and your faith in your riches. And so he says, okay, um, how about selling them? Selling it all, give to the poor, and lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And he basically is saying to all of us, with, with every one of us has something that could be standing in the way of us giving, giving the Lord the 100% priority, the top priority that he deserves. What is holding us back? What do we still trust too much? And we just really, we just really can't give that up. And that's what, you know, Jesus is saying. Do you really believe, you know, that that I am everything that you need? And I also know that what you need. It's kind of a beautiful thing, isn't it? How, yes, I am all you need, but I know what you need. So then I will give you what you need. It's such a beautiful two-way street. So why aren't we willing to just plain surrender it all? But this man couldn't do it. Jesus said, you know, it's easier for a rich, rich man to, um, it's, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven or, or whatever. If it's not money, it's something. What's keeping you from that kind of relationship that he wants? And then Peter said, oh, boy, we, we have given up everything for you. And, and Jesus comes back and said, and you will not be sorry. And that's what he says to you and I. There, there's no way we can ever outgive God. He will see to it that we will be blessed over and over and especially someday. So then um, he he predicts his death. He predicts it again. He tells the disciples again that he's going to die and he'll raise, be raised three days later. Um, this time he really details them. Um, I'll, I'll, the Son of Man will be spit on, mocked, beaten, um, killed, but then three days rise. And it says that he, you know, it was all all hidden from them. They didn't understand what he was saying. And, and Oh, what a good lesson. How often don't we not want to hear something? We don't want to go there. We don't want to deal with it. We It's so much easier to just skip it. And that's why I, I appreciate a verse-by-verse study, because you can't skip it. I mean, we have to do it. And and this is good. This is very good that we can't just pick and choose Scripture, what we want. We've got to hear it all. And so when he... When he when, when the disciples, you know, oh, I don't get it. I don't understand. No, you know what? You shut your eyes, you pull your ears. You don't want to go there. And that was a very good example of that. And then finally, the blind beggar. I mean, what a what a great guy this man was. I mean, he, you wouldn't have known how wonderful he was because so often we just look at people and we go by looks and smell. And this guy didn't have either one, you know. So, um, I mean, good anyways. I mean, I'm sure he had smells and I'm sure he looked pretty crazy, you know. But and so we look at that and we think, oh, poor guy. But really, he's such a great guy. You know, he's, he hears the commotion. What's, what's happening? Well, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by, and he shouts out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And, you know, of course, all the sound is muffled because, you know, of all the commotion. And, and, they, and they try to rebuke him. They try to say, be quiet. I mean, I, I wonder how many times that poor guy's heard that. Just be quiet. Just, you know. And in this, this guy, I love his desperation, his determination, his desire. And we're going to see that again, those words, in this lesson that we're going to do tonight. But this man just had it. And when Jesus finally heard him, because he, he didn't care what people thought, he just yelled it louder. And Jesus did hear it, and he stopped. And then he asked this question, what do you want me to do for you? And I, re- I, I can recall the time when Jesus said that to me. When, what do you want me to do for you? You know, I have to answer that question personally. What do I want from Jesus? And I just hope and pray every one of you, you know, because he's going to ask every one of us that question. And that our, our first answer is, I want the salvation you're offering. I want all the promises that you have, that you have 
given me. I want my eternal home. I want, I want my soul I'm a, to be united with a brand new body, to live in, in perfection forever and ever. I, I want that. I want my sins forgiven. I mean, I want to be washed whiter than snow. I mean, I hope that's what we say, but I don't think that's always the one and only time that Jesus asks you and I that question. I kind of visualize since I've done this lesson, it's like every morning I can almost hear Jesus say, well, it's another day. What do you want me to do for you today? And what, that has been such a, a, a neat thing because I know he's there. He'll never leave me or forsake me. So how about that? That's, that's the way we started a day. Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you today? I'm here. I'm right here at your disposal. So how about it? What are you and I going to do today? And, and so that question was major. And then when Jesus, you know, um, said, what do you want me to do for you? Of course, he said, I want to see. And, you know, as beautiful as our physical eyes are and our physical ears. And, of course, he wanted to physically see. But you can take this so much deeper. I want to see you. I want to be able to understand from my heart uh, to take these words like I prayed tonight. That they're just not words on a page. But that, that, the, that the eyes of my heart, the ears of my heart go into a depth that I could never just hear and see with physical. So, and then Jesus says, oh, you will receive your sight. This, this man received his physical sight, but I don't think this man was ever the same spiritually either. And his faith healed him. When Jesus heals us, not not physically. He's, we have learned that. But we, in 19 chapters, he's more, he's more consumed about making sure we know that we're healed from the inside more than anything. And then, and then just look at his response. You know, when you've been healed by Jesus spiritually, I mean, it should automatically cause this praise and this gratitude. And, and, and then his disposition was such... You know, we've been talking about that too, how our, how our countenance and our actions and our demeanor, we wear that name Christian, people are watching. I mean, just look how effective he was. He, he started praising the Lord and it said people were watching and before he was so, he was, he was so contagious, before, they knew, before he, they knew it, he knew it, everybody was praising the Lord. So what a beautiful picture for us that we can cause others to come along, to praise, to, to, to put their eyes on Jesus just by the way we are. So, then we move into this study tonight. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So Luke, through the Holy Spirit, made sure that we knew these details. I mean, we've been talking about tax collectors throughout this gospel, but we, we need to know Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. I would say that he was pretty much the head of the tax department. So if, if tax collectors were hated, he was hated double. So, but yet, look at, he had mastered a lot. He's very wealthy. He's got a high position. And yet, look at, just like what I said, like last week too, he was missing something. He wanted to see who Jesus was. He had heard about him. There was something inside of him that longed. And I say that, maybe you're thinking, well, how do you know that? For, I know he's short and all, and he couldn't see above, but that had been quite a sight for a little guy to go up that tree. What would you have thought if you saw this older, older, yet shorter fella just um, shimmying up at the tree? And he was up there, and he had his little position because he was going to see Jesus. He ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached that spot, you talk about appointments. You know, that's why I can't encourage you enough that, you know, you keep your appointment. All of you have been so faithful, and you keep your appointment coming here on Tuesday night. You know, it's kind of like it's on your calendar, and if you're home, you're there. And if you're not sick, you're there because you know it's an appointment that the Lord has with you. And 
um, even though we don't come here, he's still expecting you and I to keep that commitment and that appointment with him because he does have appointments with people. And he had an appointment with Zacchaeus. It's just that Zacchaeus didn't know it because look at how the Lord knew just what tree to look up to. He knew just exactly where he was in that tree. And he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house. You know, when we sing this song, it's always kind of confusing. You know, when you say, I'm going to your house today. I'm going to your house to stay. That's the way I put it. Because um, I think from this scripture here, Jesus is kind of stretching us to see that our heart is his home. And when we invite him to come in, he wants to stay there. I mean, and he will. He will make our heart his home. And its intent is to stay there always. And so this is, he's trying to say to Zacchaeus, I must, I must stay at your house today. And so, you know, this is the appointment. And he, those two are not going to break this. So um, it says that he came down, he just shimmied back down, and he welcomed Jesus gladly. Well, all the people watching this saw this and began to mutter. Oh, I can just hear, can't you? I can just hear. This has been a problem with Jesus since he started this ministry. Instead of rejoicing when, when people have been healed, I'm thinking of the sinful woman, she came in, her sins are forgiven, the withered hand, the the demon-possessed man who was running around naked, and then he, all of a sudden he's got clothes on, his hair's combed, and, you know, he, people should have been so excited, but no, what do those people say? Get out of here. You know, get out of here. No one sees Jesus walking away to the home of this of this um, tax collector, chief tax collector. Shouldn't they have been excited about that? But no, they're muttering, oh, see, because they really don't know Jesus, and they certainly haven't looked in the mirror lately because they said he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, um, between verses 7 and 8 or whatever, I just think that is when, when verse 8 happens, I think it's after Jesus has spent some time with Zacchaeus and he has talked, he's talked the gospel through. He's told him that not only do we receive him as our savior, but then there's a transformed life. There's a, there's a life that he expects us to live, how to live. There's integrity, there's, there's respect, there's decency, there's um, following the commandments, no stealing. This is what, you know, so I'm sure Jesus has answered his questions, expressed to Zacchaeus the terms the terms that he has set out, because, I mean, look at verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, I think it was after their long conversation, he said, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. I'll tell you, he wouldn't have done that otherwise. But once he understood and got to see, because that's what he's searching for. He was searching, something was missing. And he found that the missing piece was Jesus. And when he heard the salvation message and Jesus saying, and this is now what I expect from you. I mean, then all of a sudden you see this surrender. You see, I want to live my life right. After all what you're going to be doing for me, this is the least I can do for you. I want to make my life right. I don't want to live in this deceit, in this cheating, and I don't want to keep hurting people. He's starting already to start to take on the character of Christ. And then Jesus said to him, today, today, salvation. After he heard all this, not only did he probably say yes to salvation, but now he's putting, he's putting feet to it. He's putting action to it. 
And that's when you see proof. Words can be cheap. But when you watch yourself start changing and doing things that you would have never done before, it's like, oh, right, this thing works. This salvation thing really works. It is wonderful, not only for my eternal life, but it's wonderful for life now that I can live right. I can be done with guilt and shame. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Now, that can mean one of two things. I mean, maybe Zacchaeus was a Jew like Matthew was. And maybe he, he was he always down deep knew or was taught or something, but he just didn't want any part of it. And maybe Jesus was saying, salvation has come to this house today. He is a son of Abraham. Or he could have meant, and I think this is even more so, is that, that he was a Gentile. That Zacchaeus could have been a Roman. He could have been, a, you know, a, a Roman tax collector, you know, cheating those poor Jews or whatever. But even so, Gentiles, when they come to Christ, we are engrafted into God's family. And what family is that? It's we're a child of Abraham too, because it all started in Genesis 12 when God made the covenant with Abraham and he set it up that the patriarchs, we got Isaac, and then we've got Jacob, who then takes 70 of his family members to Egypt, and they grow into a million plus, and Jacob's name is changed from Jacob to Israel. And so now we've got a nation called the Israelites that we know from the prophets that Jesus came through the line. But to think that we're engrafted into God's family. For the Son of Man came. This is why he came, to take people like Zacchaeus, to take people like you and me, Jew or Gentile or whatever. He came to save the lost. And if we were all right up front and honest, we would have to say that's every one of us. Every one of us. He came to seek and to save the lost. Then while they were listening to this, See, we have watched different chapters where Jesus has taken, you know, he's had a theme. And, and we kind of worked out that theme in different portions. You know, it's like Luke said, oh, this, this story will fit good here. So it wasn't always in chronological order. This chapter seems to follow, like, like Jesus is, is winding down and, and he's just had this experience with Zacchaeus. And then... While they were listening to this, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. They're still caught in that. They cannot, it just seems like they can't get beyond that. They think that Jesus has come. I think they do believe who he is, but they, but they totally only see with their physical eyes. The only one to see him as the savior of Rome. He's going to save us from Rome. So we want to see him set up a kingdom and, and he will make us all be better. He will, he will make our life easier. He will see to it that Rome is put in their place and, and we have a kingdom that he, that Jesus has set up. And life will be so much better for us and easier. And, you know, he has tried to explain. In fact, even remember in Luke 17 where he said, the kingdom of God, it's, it's not something you can see. It, it lives within you. The kingdom of God is your relationship with the Lord. And it, it's inside of you. And the ramifications of it is seen in your life. But the kingdom of God itself is within you. But they have not gotten that yet. They still want him to be that kind of king that will free them from Rome. So Jesus is going to try this parable. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now, we're going to do this parable for sure, but in the back of your mind, make sure that you know that this king here, it is Jesus. 
And, and this is what he wants us to see that eventually this is what's going to happen. And so keep that in mind. Man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 money. But put this money to work, he said, until I come back. So, I mean, you can just picture, you know, Jesus came the first time. He came to give us the gospel message. And then he, you know, he goes back to heaven. But then he says, I want you to be a part of the king's business. I want you to take the gifts that, uh, that are mine, but that I give to you. And I want you to work out your salvation. I want you to work this. I want you to grow more for you personally and to grow others. I want you to grow this kingdom of God. So this is what he's saying through this parable. This king is coming. He says, these are, these are my assets. These are the gifts that I'm giving you. Now you go out and you grow them until I come back. You've got a job to do. I don't want, you, I don't want your life to be about yourself all the time. I want you to be a part of the king's business. But now, verse 14, it's like he, he changed from the servants, and then he, ta- then he goes to his subjects. And who are the subjects? And these are the unbelievers, really. But these are rebellious citizens that for some reason decided they don't like this guy. His subjects hated him, sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be king. And I was, I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, this king was probably a great leader. He probably was very disciplined. He probably was no nonsense. He, he you know, he really knew how to control people, and he knew that it would take some real terms and laws and and you know a lot of times we buck against that you know no one's going to tell me what to do and I just kind of pictured all of these people saying no, he's too tough. you know we have no leeway and he's he's just you know making sure that ship's going in one direction and they don't like that and the the one thing that I thought of actually two things I I thought of I don't know if you remember this man Henry Vander Lundy and he was a band director at Holland Christian. And, I mean, he remind, when I read this, I, he popped into my mind. Because um, I remember both my, our children um, took band from him. Chad played drums. Jason played saxophone, mostly without a reed because he faked it most of the time. But he, we knew he wasn't going to be an instrumentalist. But anyways, they were under his instruction. And... I remember they would come home spitting and sputtering, whining about, oh, Mr. Vanderland, he's so tough. He doesn't let us get away with anything. We, you know, as a parent, you're thinking, way to go, you know. But, but yet, he was a tough, tough band director. And but if you remember Tulip Time back then, that Holland Christian band, when they marched down 8th Street, there was not, they were so meticulous. They were such the best band it was a big band it was one that you noticed they even went and played at Washington DC you know and there was something about this band in fact even when the parade was done he would not allow them to take off any part of their uniform until they got back to the bus or wherever because they represented the school and he wasn't going to have them looking like a mess with a hat off and the, the uniform hanging. Well, kids thought, this is such a mean guy. Well, you know, I've asked my kids lately, because when I was thinking about that, I said, hey, you remember Henry Vanderlindy? Oh, he was the best. That's what they say now. And it's true, because you realize what he had done. You know, and, you know, I was thinking last night, you know, Tom's brother was at Bible study with his wife, and, and Ken was um, a great basketball coach in Allendale. And, and you know, he was kind of short in stature, too. It was, it was really kind of fun to go to the games. His, his players stood like one whole person above him, you know. And yet, Ken carried a big stick, and he was a no-nonsense coach. And he, you know, 
That's just the way he was. But I'm telling you, he got that team to win, and we were the finals many times. And I'm thinking, you know, now you watch his, his kids, you know, he calls me his kids yet, you know. You watch them. They're all grown, married children and all that. They come back to him, and they, they just thank him for what he instilled in them. And I think we all have a story like that. A teacher that we thought was so mean, but they were mean because they loved us so much and they didn't want us to just, you know, fall off and do whatever we wanted because we weren't old enough to understand what we needed. I think this king knew what he wanted for his particular part of the kingdom. He was no nonsense. And so he was made king, however, anyway. And when he returned, and then he returned home. But look what he did first. He first went to his servants, checked on his servants first. And it says that he, when he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it, he went to the, the first one came and said, sir, your money has earned 10 more. I mean, this man, he obeyed the terms. He didn't, he didn't consume his life with all his own self. He went about the king's business, used the gifts the king had given him, and he made more. And look what he heard. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have made, because you've been trustworthy in very small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. See, I told you, I told you, Jesus said, I'll make it worth your while. You do what you do and follow the terms that I have given you. I will see to it. It will be worth it. We might not see it here, but he promised. I don't know how rewards are going to go in heaven. I just know that there's going to be some and he's just. And he will, he will give them as necessary. But this just shows he was so pleased. Well done. That's just what I asked you to do and you did it. The second came and said, sir, your money has earned five more. And his master answered, you take charge of five cities. Way to go. Then another servant. See, it's still a servant. I mean, he's still gonna, he's still gonna go to heaven. He's still been to the cross. He's still asked forgiveness, asked Jesus to become his savior. But never made himself into a servant that put himself aside and wanted to serve entirely his life for the Lord. He didn't want to follow the terms. He still wanted to call his own shots. I'll plug in when I want to or when it's convenient, but otherwise I want to live my life the way I want to live it. And this is what you see He's missing so much. And people today, so many church people are missing so much. This servant, look at he does. He says, sir, here's your money. Here's the money that you gave me. Um, I kept it and I laid it in a piece of cloth. I can just hear him. God, I took it right off. I had my hanky the whole time. Kept it safe in my pocket. Here it is. And then verse 21, I'll tell you this, you know, I have a feeling that he didn't think that was going to be a big thing. When he, I think he thought he was going to take it out of his pocket and he was going to hand it to the, to the master and all would be fine. But see, the master went to the first one first and then the second one. And he's been watching. And all of a sudden he realizes, hmm, I don't have that. And I'm reminded of verses that Paul said in Corinthians where he said that all of our works, all of the gifts that God has given us after our salvation, they're going to go through a fire and they're going to either come out as precious stones because we used it for his glory or these gifts that were given to us were used for our own self and they're going to come out as ash. And whatever comes out of that fire is what we are going to hand him. And, you know, that is quite chilling because we've talked about standing in front of Jesus face to face. But the very thought that what we did with our salvation is going to go through the fire. And I think he is looking at these two and he realizes that, I don't have anything. 
Because I think there's got to be something when you think if all of our life after our salvation was still all about us and it goes through the fire and we have ash to put into the hands of Jesus and all of a sudden we see these nail marks. So this man, I think he's feeling all these emotions and then he comes up with this because, you know, he's got to pass the bug. He's got to give some reason why, of course, he kept it in his pocket. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man and you take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. I tell you, this guy's got guts. You know, he threw it back. I did that. The reason I did it, well, I kept that right in my pocket because you're a hard man. You know, I looked in King James. Uh, hard man, the word that the King James uses in, in the, instead of hard is um, the word, let's see, the word is austere. He was an austere, you, you're an austere man. Well, I didn't know what that meant, so I looked it up. Well, one of the synonyms is hard, so there's nothing wrong with the word, but austere, there's so much more to it. When he called Jesus an austere man, uh, that word means severe, oppressive, making his living out of the toils of others. In other words, I just sit back and make everybody work for me. The servant accused him of being uncompassionate, hard to please. And again, if you are looking at that king, that master, as Jesus, that is just the opposite of what Jesus is. But this man, he's so, he's, he's got to excuse himself for his, his selfish behavior because he had to, he was tooting around while the king was gone and all he cared about was himself. He didn't, he didn't do anything with the gifts for the Lord. He probably used, you know, maybe he even never thought of that before. Maybe he used that money and used it for himself and then paid it back. Who knows? All I know is that he did not do what the king asked him to do. And so his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you? You knew that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow. So that's what you thought of me? And then he goes, why then didn't you put my money? If that's what you really thought, why didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? At least I would have had a little interest. You know, Jesus is saying, I see right through that crazy excuse. I know it was all about you the whole time. You had nothing to show for it. Then he said to those standing by, take this money away from him and give it to the one who has 10. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He, Jesus replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. See, this is the picture that I think is so sad. I mean, yeah, as Paul, Paul said, he's saved, but he's saved by fire. I mean, he's saved by the skin of his teeth. He, did, he, didn't, he didn't take his salvation and, and be the light to a world that needed to see his testimony. He just lived his life his own way. So... You know, this is now what we call judgment day, this verse. Now, Jesus is going to finish this parable, but he is going to say it in words that he has said many times, but he's trying it this way. He's saying, but those enemies of mine. Now, he's, he dealt with the servants first. Now, he's dealing with, what did he call them? His subjects, his, his rebellious citizens who didn't like him because of all of his of his firmness and toughness and no nonsense he said but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them bring them here and kill them in front of me see i mean he has said that i mean it is you have no one to blame but yourself but he is putting it this way and i i couldn't help but 
in Revelation, it really talks about, you know, we all have to be resurrected. And there's going to be different resurrections. There'll be a different, there'll be a resurrection for the believer. That's first. There'll be a, a re- re- resurrection for the martyrs. But the last resurrection in Revelation 20 is the resurrection of the unbeliever. And they will stand before the great white throne. And that's all I could picture because this is what Jesus said. You know, everybody's going to be raised to stand before him. And, and this is why that whole phrase about if you're an unbeliever, you are only, you're born only once, but you're going to die twice. Because here it's very obvious. Jesus says that unbeliever will be raised. Bring him to me. Stand him right in front of, in front of me. And I'm going to watch him. I'm going to watch him go to his eternal death. People say, oh, come on. God doesn't send people to hell. No, you're right. He doesn't. You just did. You did it to yourself. But he's going to stand there and watch. Not gloating by any means. He's probably going to stand there weeping because you had so many chances. I wanted to see that in the latter part of this chapter. After Jesus had said this, See, now after he'd said this, now we're moving on, going up to Jerusalem. And he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why, are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. You talk about a a willing Savior. I mean, it just shows even in this detailed, I mean, he, he knows exactly what kind of animal he's going to ride in and the reason for. He's, he's got all of this prepared. I mean, he, he just made sure every detail was ready for his purpose in coming. And so this whole thing about a colt, you know, why did he choose? Because he did. He handpicked this animal. He knew he wanted to have a colt, and it it couldn't have been ridden before. So that's quite specific. And, you know, during that time, if you rode a horse, it usually meant like a general going to war. I mean, it was kind of a more of an opposite of peace kind of entry. A cold represented, at least, I'm, you know, from what I saw, that a cold was what royalty would ride. A man came up to me this morning and had such an interest and never thought about it because he is a horseman. And he said that a cult, he said it would, that's just another miracle because this cult has never been ridden before. And for Jesus to hop on, I mean, why didn't that thing buck or do something? I mean, that was, again, just another example of God's hand-picked way that Jesus is going to go through to, into Jerusalem. So, you know, the colt, never been ridden, was meant for royalty. And I thought, yeah, of course, he, he is trying to make a statement, I am royalty. <laughs> I mean, I know Jesus has always been so humble. He's been so, um, he's, he's been poverty since his birth. So absolutely, you know, he's royalty because he's the prince of beasts, he's the king of kings, but he's, he's led a life that's opposite of what royalty looks like. In fact, Jesus came in, yes, as royalty, so he wanted to make sure people knew that he was royalty, but yet he came in with meekness and gentleness. And we have got to know that meekness and gentleness are two attributes that when you see those words, you almost kind of think, oh, kind of soft, kind of weak. You know, he's just quiet. And he was, he was the prince of peace. But meek, blessed are the meek, Jesus said in the Beatitudes. Meek does not mean weak. Gentleness, he came in gentleness. Gentleness is the eighth fruit of the spirit. That means he needs seven before it to even be able to attain gentleness. So gentleness is a big deal. It's it's hard to be gentle. And you know what it means? It means you have a silent strength. You don't need to fight and debate. You know who you are. 
so he came in with meekness. I don't have to fight. I don't have to debate. I know exactly who I am. And he rides on that colt meant for royalty because he was. And sure enough, those who were sent ahead went, found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. That line disturbed me. They praised him all right, but they praised him for all what they what Jesus had done for them. He had done miracles. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. I mean, he had done so many things for their lives, but they missed what he came to do for their lives. And, the, and I don't think Jesus has a, a, a real smile on his face, even with all that praise. When blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, I think they really did believe, but they didn't, they didn't want to think that it was so far down the line. They wanted it now. Typical human being. I want to be comfortable now. I want you to fix it now. And they had watched him fix so many situations. So, oh, now he's going he's gonna to make it happen for us. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know, Jesus, I don't think, was really smiling that big because he knew the, mo- the, the motive behind their praise. You know, to us, it was a triumphant entry because we on this side know that when Jesus did this entry into Jerusalem, he was on his way to the cross, which meant our salvation, which meant an empty tomb. So we are new in Christ. So yes, it was a triumphant entry, but you know, I don't think as far as exuberance, Jesus was saying, whoa, this is great. No, he knows. He knows that in a few days, some of these sane people are going to, because obviously when Jesus is on his way to the cross, they know that, no, he did not do it. We're still under the Roman rule. Well, what is the deal with all this? Oh, sure, they were just sick. And so then they turned. Fickle people, you don't get what you want. So how quick we are to turn. And then they start shouting something else. But bless his name. How about crucify him? But at this time, they're praising. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, and it was loud. And they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Like, Come on, get him to be quiet. To them, it was a bunch of noise. And Jesus replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus knows if they keep quiet, believe me, all you have to do is look around. And I I looked up Psalm 148. And, you know, all you have to do is look up and you look at creation and you can't help but praise the creator. Listen to this. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, all this he created. Stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations. You princes and all rulers of the earth, young men, maidens, old men, and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name is to be exalted. Jesus said, if they don't praise me, believe me, creation will. And he approached Jerusalem. Okay, he, he managed to get into, or close to, he approached Jerusalem, and he saw that city, but before he walked in, he wept over it. He wept over it. And he was not weeping for himself. Know that. He was not saying, oh boy, here we go. This is not going to be pretty. This is going to be painful. He was not weeping for himself. He was weeping like I am out, nearly out of time here. 
and he was crushed. That's why don't think for a second that even when, when an unbeliever stands before Jesus, that there's going to be a sarcastic word or, I told you, you made your bed, now you lie in it. I mean, there's going to be none of that. I think we're going to see him, even when he has to stand there and watch them suffer the eternal consequences, he's going to have tears running down his face. Because he goes on to say, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, if you would have just listened, I tried every way possible, but you would not listen. And if you would have, you would have known that you could have this peace. But now, instead, it's hidden from your eyes because you didn't want to see it. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, encircle you, hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He's saying there are consequences. There are two prophecies here, one that's been fulfilled. I mean, he is saying, Okay, this is what I do. I know I know it sounds like this is mean, but it's because he loves, he's trying to get their attention. I mean, Rome comes in and just in 70 AD just destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple. And I know I'm stepping out on a limb because I know that it was because of the sin of 9-11, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, my goodness, with the earthquakes that we're seeing now, 7.8 in Turkey and Syria, and I mean, 5,000 so far dead. Um, I know that's horrible. I know these tornadoes that just wiped through Fort Myers. It's just so hard to believe. We've seen this in the last years, and we think, and God is saying, don't do get it? I'm trying. I love you so much. I'm trying to get your attention. And I know these are severe things. Lives are lost, but there is nothing more important to the Lord than a soul and whatever needs to be done to wake up people to know that their souls are either going to go to hell or they're going to go to heaven. And it's what we decide to do with it now. And right now we're living like, what do we, what did we see last week? He said, remember Noah, Remember the people back in Noah? Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, we're in the exact days of that. He's just trying to get our attention so that we wake up and realize that eternity is just that. It's eternal. So, you know, you wonder if that could have been, if they, if they would have done a major... Um, Revival. You wonder if that would have happened in 70 AD. You know, but the Lord says, he prophesied that. He knew they weren't going to change their mind, even though he was standing right there for three years telling the same story over and over, and they chose not to believe. Then he comes, he comes in to prove, I mean, business, and maybe this will get your attention. And now we have a future prophecy here. He's saying the same thing. He says, please know you're living in the age of grace, but the day is coming that everything will be dealt with. Every sin will be dealt with that you think you got away with. It won't be. So either deal with your sin and make it go under the blood of Christ so then I remember it no more, or I'll deal with it as your judge, right face to face. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. And he quoted, you know, we've watched him quote um, Zechariah 9, 9. We've watched him now quote Isaiah 56, 7. And he is quoting these Old Testament passages because these people are supposed to, they know these verses. I bet they stand up in the temple and just are so prideful of the fact that they have learned their Bible verse and they can quote it like nothing. So Jesus is quoting those verses that they probably have memorized. And so he quotes, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You know, there's that one section in the temple 
that was supposed to be just for Gentiles. I mean, they can't enter that Jewish temple anywhere else, but that one area was given to them. And, you know, these these people who were, they just kind of kicked those Gentiles out of their space, and they set up their tables, and... You know, it's, time, it's a place where they come with their sacrifices. And, and I suppose if, if, they had, if they could, if they came from nearby, they could bring their own. If you could bring your own two little doves to sacrifice. I'm just going to give you money dimensions to, to show you how deceitful they were, how, how, um, how they were stealing from people. If they were able to bring two doves, it probably cost them four cents. But so many were coming from so, so distance that they couldn't bring them. So they would have to buy. And of course, oh, sure, they had a convenient right there. Oh, come and buy here. Here we go. 75 cents. Well, you know, just look from 4 cents to 75 cents and put that in whatever dimension you want. But that is highway robbery. And those people could not afford that. And they were just raking in the dough. And Jesus couldn't stand that this is my father's house. You kicked the Gentiles out. And now you're stealing. Boy, I'm sure he was upset. And, and look at verse 47. Every day he was teaching at the temple. Every day. You know, look how close he is to his crucifixion. And yet, he is not kind of in a room with his loved ones, spending his last days with his favorite people. Now look, every day he was teaching at the temple. He was not going to waste one opportunity. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. They still, after all this beautiful teaching in chapter 19, and he couldn't have made it any plainer through those parables, such visual for the people to see. They had to have not wanted because it was clear. So while they're all plotting to kill Jesus, I like this verse, didn't you? Yet, they couldn't. Why? Because it wasn't the exact second. Timing is of the essence. And it wasn't yet time. It might be just days away, but it wasn't time yet. And so Jesus is still preaching and they couldn't find a way to kill Jesus in here earlier because it just wasn't going to happen. But I loved the way this chapter ends because the people were still hanging on his words. They were hanging on his words. Oh, what a lesson there. Did you ever think of that? I mean, you hang on his words. And I thought, you know, what? You, you hang on to the words of Scripture. They can give you such assurance. They can give you such hope. They can give you such comfort. Whatever you're in need of, his word if you hang on his word, you, he's got something in there for you to get you to the next minute, to the next hour, to the next day. You hang on his word. Think about, you know, someday in, in Revelation 19, he is going to ride a horse. He is going to ride a big white horse, and he's going to be coming in. And that horse is going to absolutely be a horse of war. Jesus is coming in ready to fight. The only thing is he isn't needing weapons. Neither does any of his, the multitudes that follow him in. They don't need any weapons. And, you know, I love that thought. All he has to do is open up his mouth, and there they are with all their weaponry, and all Jesus just opened his mouth, and then they just are dead. I love that. I can't, I can't say it or go over that enough. And then, And then I get to... Revelation 21, and I think, oh, yes, the, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth because all the old order of things have passed away. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. In fact, I think it will, he'll wipe every tear from his eyes because now all has been made perfect. 
I mean, what, what you hang on that, that keeps you going because every word is true. But then I thought, you know, to end tonight, I thought, you know, yeah, I love hanging on to that 21st chapter of Revelation. I, but then I hang on to Revelation 22 because he brings me back to reality. And he says, you got to go about your king's business. Until he comes back, you've got work to do. And all I could think of was, so until then, my heart better go on singing. Until then, with joy, I'll carry on until the day. My eyes behold that city until that day. God calls me home. Heavenly Father, thank you for making this so clear and so real. And may we long to hang on to your words. That's the only thing that we get a grip on that is going to sustain us. Or we're going to slip and we're going to fall. So Lord, thank you for just making these parables, these stories so clear because they are... They are Henry Vanderlindy, they're Ken Pierce, they're, you are tough, but yet it's because you love us and you're trying to get us to see this isn't just fun and games, this is reality. What are we doing with the time until you come back? Father, we just love you. Father, may even in this course of the next seven weeks that we hang on to the Psalms, We hang on to your every word because you've got something to teach us no matter where we go in this book. Father, may we keep our appointment with you and we'll always give you praise and the glory and may our lives just radiate and be a testimony of your goodness in our lives so people too will want to join and come along. We pray this all in our Savior's name, who because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all our fear can be gone. Because we do know he holds our future. And that is what makes life worth living. Father, we thank you for the tools that you've given us, from music to your Holy Spirit to your word, everything we need. May we not be filled with excuses and blame you When we don't get what we want, may we trust the king. We pray this all in his name. Amen.